Last Sunday, we began to unpack the words of Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robe. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. As we delved into this psalm, we began to pull out some massive truths that the psalm taught us about cultures that are marked by unity. Here's the edited highlights. We spoke about how the culture of unity carried the very essence of God. The psalmist told us that unity is good, and we know from the scripture that God is good. Therefore, unity is an extension of himself. It carries, conveys, and contains his very essence. We mentioned that unity was an experience. It was not a, a, a feeling. It was not a belief system. It's an experience that in turn becomes a lifestyle. Unity, we said, releases the anointing. In cultures that are marked by unity, we find the incubating influence of the Holy Spirit who is transitioning life and unfolding the purpose of God within moments where unity is found. And that means then that moments of unity carry the potential for the supernatural because they release the atmosphere of God. And within moments and cultures of unity, God does something bigger than our current structure because he begins to speak and he mandates blessing. We concluded then that pursuing unity is equal to and mandatory for pursuing God. Now, these are massive claims that are made from the psalm. Big, bold statements that our attention is drawn to and that we are encouraged to behold. But the big thing that we explore this week is, well, how do we actively pursue unity? It's one thing to call out what the Scripture teaches us about it, and that's important. But how do we actually do that? And we concluded our time last week by agreeing that unity was a choice that we had to make, and that many of us stood actually at the end of the message last Sunday as a sign of stepping into that choice and committing our church to choosing unity to become a hallmark of the culture that God is forming. But how do we do this? Like, how, how does this mark our moments of togetherness? And how, in a larger city church, do we step into this when reality is that we don't know everyone in the room? And as the church grows, we're unlikely to be able to pursue a basic level of connection with everybody, let alone a deep friendship. Some people are just unknown faces across the room, aren't they? So how, how do we do this? How, how can I exist in unity with my fellow church members, some of whom I don't know and may never have met before? And there's one key area that enables us to adopt this choice of culture as an expression. One key way that we can allow a culture of unity to shape the way that we dwell together. And the key to this is found in understanding how Psalm 133 was used and how it was intended to be used. And the key to that is found in the title of the psalm, which is the small print that you find underneath the number of the psalm. And there it tells us that this is a song of ascents. So what that means then is that it was believed by theologians and scholars that this would have been one of the songs that was sung as the people made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one of the main festivals. 
These songs were called songs of ascent because it's reckoned that people sang these songs either as they climbed up the hill to the temple or some reckon that they were sung by the priests as they stepped up each step to the temple entrance. They sang a psalm, a song of ascent on each step. Whatever way these songs were used, this call to lay hold of unity would have been intentionally on the minds and the lips of the people as they set their sights upon entering into the literal manifest presence of God. And if you think on it from the perspective of the priests, if they did sing these psalms, 15 psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, if they sung each psalm on the step, then it's likely that when they came to Psalm 133, the second last step, that they were singing about beholding unity, the anointing of God, the blessing of God, as they were beginning to feel and experience the manifest glory of God within the temple. The context of this psalm, or what this psalm speaks to then, is not actually about the way that Jewish people hung out, or even the way that they interacted with each other, although these features are important components of unity. But primarily, the way that this psalm shaped their understanding and experience was when they were coming into God's presence. And when they were coming with the expressed intention of worshipping Him and ministering to Him. This then is how we apply these verses, because that's the way they're intended to be used. They were intended to impact our posture alongside one another in moments of worship and ministry. They were intended to shape and influence and direct the moments that God's people came together to pursue God. And in such moments, David calls to us and he says, as you pursue God, pursue unity. In fact, the psalm tells us almost as you approach God, you have to approach in unity. Unity has to be an important hallmark of worship and ministry if we want to host the glory of God. And so our choice to pursue unity has to shape our approach to worship and the way that we seek to exist in His presence. Now we turn to a scripture to help us with this. If you have your Bible, we're going to turn to 2 Chronicles 5. And we're going to read a chunk there. And we're only really going to touch base on it, call a few things out before we move on. But we're going to read this big chunk of scripture together. Second Chronicles 5. It says, when all the work Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and all the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasures of God's people. Then Solomon summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. And all the Israelites came together to the king at the time of this festival in the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the Levites took up the ark and they brought up the ark and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The Levitical priests carried them up and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered around him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and covered the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends extending from the ark could be seen from in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place, and they're still there today. 
There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb where the Lord had made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. The priests then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves regardless of their divisions. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Sorry, take it by one. Accompanied by the trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, the singers raised their voices and praised the Lord and sang, He is good, his love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Oh, for a time where we cannot stand to minister because the glory of the Lord has filled this house. Now, we've approached this text before to talk about covenant presence versus manifest presence. One of the things that we get asked quite a lot about is about, and we touched base on this last week, you know, why do we talk about come Holy Spirit? Why do we invite the Holy Spirit? Why do we talk about seeking a time where there is a move of God and the presence of God comes close and the glory of God comes down because God has promised us where two or three gather, there I am in the midst. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you to the ends of the age. We carry his presence in us. He is with us at all times. So why do we do that? And that's because there's a difference between his covenant presence and his manifest presence. And there's a number of places that we see that, and we've touched on this before, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But in Genesis, right at the very beginning, we're told that at the very beginning, as God laid the foundations of the world, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep or over the surface of the waters. And the word hovering there actually means to incubate, and it carries this concept of like a hen sitting on her eggs to completely envelop and cover them. And into this environment that was completely enveloped by the presence of the Holy Spirit, God began to create everything, which would suggest that everything that was came into being within an experience of the manifest presence of God. Now, our basic understanding is that God is one who is everywhere. He is omnipresent. The psalmist says, where can I go to flee from your presence? And he says, there's nowhere. He's in everything. He is everywhere. He's omnipresent. And that was the case in Genesis. But despite the fact that we see there was this incubating influence of the Holy Spirit, God filled everything with himself. There still is recorded this moment where it says, and the Lord came walking into the garden in the cool of the day. There was a moment where God became specifically, specially present to interact with his kids, with his children. And we see this throughout the scripture. And we see it also here. Because here they bring in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark represents God's covenant presence with them. Inside are the tablets, the laws by which God says, if you keep these, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. And we're told that he was enthroned over the ark. His presence, his literal presence was there. But even though they bring in the covenant presence, that which represents the presence of God, there still comes this moment where we're told suddenly the glory of God came. Because here is a moment where God became specially and specifically present to minister to his kids. And so we long for those moments 
where we understand we are saved, we are filled with the Spirit, we carry the presence of God with us, where two or three are, are gathered, there he is in the midst, he promises he will never leave us, he is always with us, that is his covenant presence. There is nowhere we can go where he is not. But there are moments where he becomes specifically and specially present. And we see that here. Here's a moment where a group of people suddenly find themselves in a gathering where God becomes specially and specifically present. And as we look at it, we look to ask, are there some dynamics that facilitated this? And there's one clear dynamic that is seen in the passage. It says, the trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise, accompanied by all these instruments. They raised their voice and sang, he is good, his love endures forever, and the temple was filled with the glory of God. This would have been a really significant moment. The guest list itself was impressive. There are the elders of Israel, the heads of the tribes, the chief of the Israelite families, the kings, the priests, all the musicians. You've got 120 trumpet-blowing priests. That sounds like quite a party. Yet despite the fact that everyone and anyone who was something in Israel was in attendance, it wasn't the impressive guest list that saw the glory of God invade that moment. It wasn't the worship team and the fact that all the musicians were in attendance giving their best performance accompanied by trumpet fanfares. And that would have been an amazing sound and it would have been a really amazing worship experience. But it wasn't the music and the atmosphere cultivated by the music that brought the presence of God. Nor was it the song that they sung. It wasn't that they cracked open one of God's favorites. Or it was that they sang an old hymn in 4-4 and they didn't repeat it and they sung it once, so therefore God turned up. No, what moved God? What moved the heart of God to see heaven come and glory manifest was their unity. The trumpers, trumpeters and musicians joined in unison. It was their unity that God responded to. And here we can see, literally, each step of the moment is mapped out for us, that they stepped into a culture of unity to, to pursue God and to worship Him. And as they did, the moment that their worship was shaped by their unity, He stamped His name and He manifested His presence. Because God inhabits moments of unity. Now, how can we say, as we often do, that you can't manufacture or manipulate the presence of God? Because you can't. Right? You, can't, you can't make God turn up. But yet what we're seeing here is here's some dynamics that makes him turn up. We can't manufacture his presence, but we do have confidence that unity moves the heart of God to be specifically and specially present. And the reason for that is firstly because God himself exists in unity. He's three, yet he is one. He's completely distinct, yet he's perfectly united. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit exist in perfect unity. And as the Godhead created humanity to live and exist in his image, he created humanity to live and exist in community and not in isolation. The picture of the first man and the first woman is one of unity, and in fact, it's the fall that interrupts unity. It's sin that brings division. But in the cross, the vision of unity is restored because we're told that there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor fear, nor is there free, nor is there male and female because we are all one in Christ Jesus. Unity is restored in the cross. 
And the cross not only restores us as human beings into a place of unity, but the cross calls us to embrace unity and to live in unity with one another. The cross calls us to adopt unity as a lifestyle because we're told above all, keep the bonds of peace. Now the other reason why we know that unity moves the heart of God to be specifically and specially present is because heaven, the realms of God's glory, exists in an environment and a culture of unity. So let's look at that. Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we spend the next 10 minutes of our time left parked in this passage, and we zoom in on one phrase or a couple of phrases that help us out. But it says, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, and they cried in a loud voice. What we read there seems like a contradiction in terms. Because what John describes for us here is that what he is seeing does not match what he is hearing. He describes as seeing a multitude of people that is too vast to count an innumerable quantity. But yet what he says he hears is a loud, singular voice. Surely the correct wording would be with loud voices they sang or with many voices they cried out. But John doesn't record himself as hearing many voices. He records just hearing one in a loud voice voice. The group of people before the throne of God, before his manifest presence and glory, exist in unison. They exist in unity. And this group of united people, this community of unity, teaches us a lot about the unity that very much marks the culture of heaven. And the first thing we see is quite a familiar point. Unity is not uniformity. As John has shown this amazing scene round the throne, he sees this vast crowd of people, innumerable, too many to count. And as he describes them to us, he notes that the people are from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. He recognizes that these people, by their function, are wonderfully united. But by their definition, they are, in fact, incredibly different because unity does not equal uniformity. Diversity can thrive in places of unity. In fact, diversity is necessary for unity. Amen? Amen. Unity is about celebrating that although we're all different, we're all one. It's about accepting and celebrating and championing our differences and our individualities and seeing who you are and what you are is welcomed and valued in this moment. A celebration of diversity is actually what cultivates unity. This is important. Listen, you don't need to sell out your character and nature to embrace Christ and live his way. 
Who you are and what you are is welcome within the community of Jesus followers that are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Your humor and what makes you laugh might be very different to mine. And having watched the start of the service, you're probably sitting thinking, yes, Fraser, it is very different. Your sense of humor might be different to mine. Your hobbies and interests might be different to mine. Your approach in worship and the way you live out your faith and journey into that faith might be different to mine. Your character and the way that you communicate and express yourself might be different to mine. Your embrace of grace and exploration of freedom that Christ offers might be different to the way that I grasp it and the way that I explore it. But surely if we're all grasping grace and pressing into freedom, then we're all on the same page, right? Unity doesn't equal uniformity. And we need to allow our churches to become places where we champion diversity and we celebrate difference. We don't all need to look the same, talk with the same tone. We don't all need to function the same because what unites us is not our compliance and conformance. That's religion. What unites us is Christ. And it's a wonderful picture of people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation and every nationality. So it kicks right out the park, this white supremacy nonsense, because unity for us is Christ. All these people from every tribe and people group and nation and language, they're all different. And their difference is called out and spelled out. But what is the same is that they all wear white robes. And given my previous point, this doesn't really help me in the preaching thing because what, what we need to call out here is that this isn't a uniform that they're all wearing. These white robes celebrate and call out righteousness. That's what they symbolize. They represent the righteousness of Jesus. And we see this when we go a few verses down. And it says, one of the elders asked John, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? And he says, sir, you know. He says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What united these people from every tribe and nation and people and language wasn't that they all looked the same and sounded the same and behaved the same. It was that they'd all experienced the same grace of Jesus Christ. They had all been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They'd all experienced His righteousness. And what an amazing picture. That all these people are described as clothed in Christ's righteousness. And the righteousness of Jesus is physically and tangibly seen in beholding them, but it's also seen in their race and their color, their gender, their tribe, their clan, their culture, their ethnicity, their individuality, because the bride of Christ is not a monotone, colorless expression. His bride, his church, his people, his body is amazing technicolor, vivid, vibrant tapestry of uniqueness and individuality, all living and breathing and functioning in the union of grace. Our unity is Christ. And here's something quite profound then, because if we say that, then our unity is not our doing, it's actually His. It's His work. It's what He's done and what He's doing in us. We celebrate diversity then by celebrating the work of Christ in each other. The work of Christ 
in each other, the work of Christ in lives that are different race, color, creed, culture, different character, different personality, different attitude, different worldview. In a culture of unity, we need to learn to celebrate and not criticize the work of Christ in each other. And I take that a step further. In a culture of unity, we need to celebrate that culture and not criticize the culture. And so I challenge you, how about before you leave this room today, you call out and celebrate the work of Christ in somebody else and champion their individuality? How about we come together in this moment and rather than talking about or criticizing or questioning decisions and, and where we're going and what's happening, what if we just celebrated what God was doing and championed and encouraged the culture that he was breathing? Our unity is Christ. But unity is also purpose. A further uniting factor in this moment is that each individual is described as holding palm branches in their hands. And this is unusual, but it is powerful. The palm branch was a sign of victory. Theologians highlight that conquerors used to carry branches in their hands. Those in Roman and Greek culture when they had been into battle and they conquered and they'd been victorious in combat, they came in holding palm branches. This was what symbolized victory as they came in through the city. They had palm branches and crowns of palm branches on their heads. Jesus, of course, was greeted in the triumphal entry in Jerusalem with people waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna. So the palm branch carries this image of joy and it carries this image of triumph and victory. How profound is it that each person in Revelation 7 is described as being washed in the blood of the Lamb? Each person is described as bearing and carrying the symbol of victory and triumph. See, each person in this multitude has a story to tell. A story of conversion, a story of grace, a story of encounter, a story of transformation. Each person has a story to tell of the victory of Jesus Christ. And their story, their testimony, that's their palm branch. It's the symbol that they are victorious because Christ, to whom they belong, is victorious. And so each one bears, each one carries the sign of victory. Each one is the symbol of Christ's victory. Because each person has a story to tell that is as unique and diverse as they individually are. And each person can only tell their story their particular way. Yet each one is valuable. We don't see the multitude organized into groupings depending on the level of grace they had experienced. It doesn't say they all had white robes on, but those that had had, you know, those Damascus Road type stories, those that had really dramatic testimonies to tell, they had white robes with a golden sheen. Now, each person was one. Each person is as valuable as the other. Each one is of worth. Each one proclaims victory. Each one presents and symbolizes that Jesus Christ is victorious over sin, the devil, the hordes of hell, and the power of the grave. So each one carries their palm branch because each one carries the victory of Christ. And they are united in their purpose. They're united in the purpose of carrying the victory of Jesus. Friends, 
And we use this phrase often, brothers and sisters, you carry the victory of Jesus Christ. If your robe is washed in the blood of the Lamb, if you have embraced Christ and grasped His grace, you carry the victory of Jesus. And you're a symbol of His victory. And your story, which is unique to you, it is of value. And it symbolizes and it declares to the world that Jesus has the victory, not just in your life, but He also has the victory in this life. And our stories are so unique and different, but we need these unique and different stories because if all we ever told was stories of people being rescued from addiction, then all people would ever think is that Jesus only rescues people from addiction. If we only had stories of people who were atheists that then become Christians, we would think Jesus only saves those who were atheists and not brought up in a believing household. But yet, the diversity of our rescue stories, the range and breadth of difference and the way that we each tell how grace has sustained us and love has transformed us, our diversity reveals His greatness. Our diversity announces the full extent of His power. So we've got to celebrate diversity and unity because in doing so, we actually reveal Christ Himself. You could say we display His very essence. We must unite in our purpose of carrying the victory of Christ. Now John describes this scene in heaven and we're bringing this into land. And there is much that we see that speaks of unity. From the diversity of the multitude, the visible righteousness that adorns the people from the nations and the symbol of victory that they hold as their posture. But what draws our attention to the unity of the crowd what calls out and undeniably presents the unity of this multitude is the function of the people. It's not that they're all there. It's not that they're all standing in the same place. What is called out as identifying their unity was that they worship. Each one carries a story of grace. Each one proclaims the victory of Jesus. Each one is adorned in the holiness of Christ. But what the description of unity is attached to is the way that they function. They bring their story of grace, their experience of his victory, the beauty of his holiness into their expression of him, into their love of him, into their adoration of him, into their worship of him. Their worship flows out of their experience of grace, their testimony of victory and their awe of his holiness. They are seen in Revelation 7 not to be worshipped. But what is seen is worship. These people, diverse yet united, exist in the presence of God and their unity is manifest when their standing is displayed through their worship. Glasgow Elam, we are all so very, very different people. We are from a rich variety of nationalities, cultures and heritage. We come from different walks of life, different upbringings, different social standings. We have very different characters, natures, personalities, and approaches to being human beings. And because of this, we might not always like one another. We might not always agree with one another. We might not always go on. We might rub each other up the wrong way from time to time. Hard to believe. Hard to believe, I know, but apparently it does happen. Where we do find our unity is this. Our unity is Christ. 
We all have experienced his grace. We all carry his victory. We are all clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, we might not all want to spend intimate time hanging out together, but what we can develop a love of is hanging out in the presence of Christ together. We can come to a place where we recognize that each other's characters and personalities might not be our cup of tea, but what we do love is coming together with everybody, even though they're different, even though they sometimes rub us up the wrong way, we love coming together and entering into his presence and worshiping him together. It's when we celebrate diversity that unity is found. And our celebration is found in the idea that I come alongside people who are so different to me, have a different testimony, different faith story, different journey with Christ to me. But I can come alongside them and find a safe and welcoming environment to worship him. I celebrate that I can come into a room and a gathering of people so incredibly diverse in character and personality and attitude and mindset and worldview, and I can love being together even in the midst of all of that cacophony of diversity. Because in those moments, it's not actually about our personalities and characters. It's all about his. It's not about our worldviews. It's about getting a view of the savior of the world. In those moments when we come together and worship, the eyes of every heart should lift from the moment in this room to the throne room. And in those moments, we unite in purpose and we become one. We bring our experience of grace, our testimony of victory, our robes of righteousness, and we express all of that in our worship to him. It's not clearly from Revelation 7 just that these people are in the same place washed in the blood of the Lamb. We can be in the same room washed in the blood of the Lamb. What unites us then is the way that we function together, the way that we worship. And yes, your worship might look different to mine. My expression might not look like yours and yours might not look like mine, but that's because we're not called to uniformity. We're called to unity. What matters is not the look and how it looks across the room. What matters is not the sound and what it sounds like. It's the heart expressing the story of grace, the power of victory, and the adoration of his holiness. That's what matters, folks. It's when I bring my story of grace alongside yours. It's when I bring my experience of deliverance and victory alongside yours. It's when I bring my awe of his holiness and my gratitude for his righteousness in me alongside your gratitude and your awe. That's when we begin to write such a glorious song of worship and adoration that it moves the very heart of God. It's the culture of worship. It's the desire to minister to him. That's what he breathes upon. That's what unlocks his blessing. And sees glory invade. When we begin to pursue that level of unity, well, then we begin to replicate the conditions of heaven on the earth. And he turns up. It's when, as one, we begin to adore him with the anthem of heaven. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. It's when we who are all different come and sing because of our own experience of his rescue and transformation, our own thankfulness for his forgiveness and his patience and his grace and his unending love, our own undeniable declaration of how he has set us free and performed the miraculous. It's when because of his work in our lives, we come to that place where we overflow and we say, salvation belongs to our God. 
It is found in nobody and nothing else. My salvation is in him and he sits on the throne of my heart and he sits on the throne of my life circumstances and he sits on the throne of this world and he is the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. And when we come and although we're all different, although our characters and natures are all different, we can come alongside one another with our story of salvation and we can celebrate the work of Christ in each other and say amen. Like the elders, we can say amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength belong to him forever and ever and ever, amen. It sounds quite crass and forgive me for saying this, but the truth is we can come into rooms with people that sometimes we're like, I don't like the look of you. I don't like the cut of your jib. The way that you speak annoys me. The way that you breathe rubs me up the wrong way, but I celebrate the work of Christ in you. I celebrate what he's done in you. I recognize that he has done great things in you. And when I hear your story, I say amen, praise and glory and power and honor and strength belong to him and him alone. That's unity. That's unity. That's when we cultivate a culture that God loves to inhabit. It's the culture of his habitation. And it's the culture of heaven itself. And when we step into unity as he is in unity, we create the conditions of God himself. When we come and we allow our worship and our adoration of him, when we come and we allow our story of salvation, our gratitude for his righteousness, the victory that he has performed in our lives to shape our expression of him, well, we create the conditions of heaven right here. And he comes We're all so very, very different. I can tell you hand on heart, there is nowhere I'd rather be on a Sunday morning than in this house, alongside family, entering into the presence of God and worshiping him with all that we've got. How about we celebrate the work of Christ in our culture? And how about we celebrate the work of Christ in one another? And how about we worship him together? The right thing is in a moment we're going to end the service by breaking bread together. It's going to be one of the last things that we do. But for now, could we worship him? Would you stand with me?